Hello, 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 LinkedIn. How are you? Um, we're going to get started here in a minute. I'm just going to wait and do a little bit of housekeeping. For those of you that don't know, whenever you do a live event on LinkedIn, you go through a third party. So hopefully you can hear me okay. You can see me okay. Um, and when you post comments, I will be able to see those okay. And our, my slides will work out okay because this is my second time doing this. And every time I do this, inevitably, when I upload the slides to the third party in order to do this, they change a little bit in how they look. So let me just check down on LinkedIn. It looks like I can see myself on my own LinkedIn, but I'm not going to turn it up and see if I can hear myself because that's going to cause an issue. All right, let's go ahead and get started. It's noon. For some of you, this is your lunchtime. I want to make this a valuable time where you can learn as much as possible in the smallest amount of time as possible. If you have not attended a training here with me before or watched any of my live um, Mindset Monday podcast episodes that I broadcast here on uh, LinkedIn, then you may not know that I like to give you information that's going to be valuable and going to be useful. I am so sick of us having the same regurgitated information repeated on how we can become better leaders. And so my mission to you is to give you actual information that's going to help you be better leaders. This is information that great leaders already know especially outside of the healthcare field, but we often don't integrate this stuff into um, healthcare leadership. Secondarily, I do have a lot of notes. So if you see me looking down, it's because anytime I prepare something, I want to make sure I give you the best bang for your buck. So I have a lot of information that I want to get through with you today. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Yashika. I am uh, the founder and CEO of The Lynn Group, and we do two things. Number one, you already probably can tell passionate about high performance leadership, which is a special type of leadership where you are not just coming in and learning how you can time manage and organize and do more and give all your energy to your organization and not have any energy for the things that you care about. This is actually a high performance leadership or high performing individuals actually are able to perform at their best at their peak for a sustained amount of time without sacrificing their well-being i have done this for myself i've done this in the various roles that i've led from military officer and beyond i've worked with private clients um, that are not in healthcare, such as entrepreneurship all of the things which led me back to healthcare. i'm classically trained as an RN and ERRN, and now um, leadership, all the things. But I noticed that the things that I'm helping my clients do around high performance and personal mastery wasn't being done in leadership. And particularly the things that we do in healthcare leave us more stressed out and more vulnerable and have us needing to perform at a high level. However, we don't do this. And so I thought specifically as my way of giving back, was to bring the principles that I've been sharing over the decades with my private clients and other organizations I work with and help my brothers and sisters in healthcare. So here we go. Um, 
Let's see. Oh, <laughs> I have questions this time because I want to get to know your organization better, what you are dealing with as leaders so that I can create more content that's tailored to the things that you're struggling with. So please, even if you're watching the replay, be interactive with the questions, answer the questions because I'm going to come back and listen to them and see how I can further be of service for you. So let's get these slides up and let's get started. Let's see here. All right, so you are in the right place if you're here to learn the science behind making better decisions. And again, this is insights for healthcare leaders in particularly. And to kick off this presentation, I want you to think of the first question. And it got a little bit cut off. I don't know why it happens like this when I come and do them on LinkedIn, but what do you think is the most challenging aspect of decision-making in healthcare leadership? This is the first question that I would love for you to answer. What do you think is the most challenging aspect of decision-making in healthcare leadership? All right, let's get into the information. Understanding the science behind decision-making, and you're going to see here, I have a little simple diagram that I want you to think about when I'm sharing this information with you because... As leaders in healthcare, we have a lot of things that influence our ability to make decisions. And whether that's uh, a heightened ability, a normal ability, or for most of us, a stunted ability to make great decisions. And it's influenced by a number of factors, such as our emotions, our actual brain makeup and structure the different cognitive biases that we all have depending on our conditioning, our culture, what have you, and the environmental factors, which is, you know, how we were raised, what we learned, how we grew up, any traumas, all of these things impact our ability to make proper decisions. And our brains especially play a critical role in being able to make these decisions. For example, at the front of your brain, you have the prefrontal cortex. What's important about this part of the brain is that it's responsible for your reasoning, your judgment, your decision-making, and it helps you weigh the pros and cons of different options so that you can make more rational decisions. As we get into this presentation, I'm going to present you with some facts about this prefrontal cortex that's going to surprise you because if you happen to be someone that prides yourself on making great decisions, most of us don't make great decisions. We haven't been taught to make great decisions and we don't make time to make great decisions. And that prefrontal cortex in all of us can be a little bit developmentally delayed and it will not be in our conscious awareness to know so. So we're kind of being thrown into a very critical part of being a leader without really having the optimized tools available to us, depending on how we grew up and other things. Um, and then you have the amygdala and that little part of the brain, this very simplistically is responsible for processing your emotions, such as fear, such as pleasure. And so what does that mean to you? The amygdala can actually influence your prefrontal cortex by triggering emotional responses that impact your choices. And again, I want you to understand that 
you can listen to me and you can think that you're making the best decisions ever. However, a lot of this stuff is done subconsciously. So you don't even know your awareness is not even on the fact of whether you're making great decisions or not. Side note, if you haven't attended any of my trainings, the things that I teach, the things that I coach, the things that I train on, don't just look at them in the context of your job. Look at them in the context of your life because the things that I'm teaching you can not only improve your career, but they can also change your personal life. So anyway, that's that little part of your brain. And for every one of us and our experiences and our personality and all the things that we've been through, we're going to have different ways that we respond emotionally to things. And so that is going to impact our ability to be rational, whether we want to admit it or not. Also in our brains, we have, and in our upbringing and our conditioning, we have these things called cognitive biases. And one of these is called confirmation bias. I want you to understand confirmation bias. And and I'm going to prove a point to you where you really don't have control over, you don't have conscious control over how all of this wiring goes about when you're trying to make decisions, unless you are an intentional and deliberate person when it comes to making decisions. So for confirmation bias, this is the most simplistic thing I can get you to think about. Um, If you went to go buy a car, right? And you wanted to buy this particular type of car. How many of you know that as soon as you think that you want this car or you bought this car, then everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, everybody has your car. That is an example of confirmation bias, which is our tendency to favor information that confirms a preconceived belief or a thing that we are subconsciously wired to pay attention to. You didn't consciously decide that you were going to weed out every single uh, car that was just like yours or like the car that you wanted. This was just an automatic process that your brain did and only filtered in information that it believed was relevant to you, such as cars that were similar to your car. So think about that. If you don't really have control over that, what else might you not have control over when it comes to the information that you are picking up and perceiving and is filtered into your aura when you are having to make decisions? This is very important because since I have now shown you that most of this stuff happens automatically, you can now understand that if you haven't been taught to critically think, if you haven't been taught to explore the way your subconscious rewiring works or the way your reticular activating system works, then you probably are not making as good of decisions as you could be if you could learn to do decision making different. If you're here with me live, go ahead and put a comment. What did you think about that? If you are watching the replay, I want to make sure that you understand this. I'm going to have time for questions at the end, but this is super powerful and super important to remember for you as a leader, for CEOs, for whoever is watching this, it doesn't matter if you think that you're making great decisions. If you haven't taken the time to understand and put 
processes in place in order to specifically cultivate decision-making, critically thinking and decision-making, then you probably are not getting the most out of your own self, out of your personal life, out of leaders, out of your team, out of your organization. It just filters beyond and it impacts our community. All right, so let's move on to the next slide. I think I harped on that a bit. That's kind of my jam if you don't know me. All right, so let's get into some evidence-based decision-making in healthcare. Here's another question for you. Comment. If you're watching a replay, still comment. Um, how often do you rely on evidence-based practices in your decision-making process? When we, I know when I went to school, it, we were always taught you need to make evidence-based decisions and data-driven decisions. However, when we actually get out and are starting to do our work and everything is fast and we got to make decisions about things that we've never done before or never had to deal with before, are we really making evidence-based decisions and or are we adopting guidelines and protocols and just putting them into place and hoping for the best? Or are we just doing things the way that we've always done and don't really want to change? You have no idea how many times I've been called in to help organizations change their process. And at the initial start of that, most of the, the people in the organization or the department that I was helping didn't want me to be there, which is odd, right? Because if all of us have been taught to do evidence-based decision-making in healthcare, then we would be more open to becoming more lean, becoming better, process improvements, all of the things, but people are so resistant to change. So comment and let me know about your organization and evidence-based practices. And even go take it a, a level deeper, even in your personal life, which I'm pretty sure just in my years of coaching, how often do you rely on evidence-based practices or objective decision-making in your personal life as well? We need reliable data. We are growing in a field technologically. We are growing with data. Like we have infinite amounts of data, but don't really know how to use that data appropriately. There's a lot of research going on. And we need to be able to take all of this information that is available to us and use it in a meaningful way to inform our decisions and make sure that we're following best practices, not only in our philosophy and our approach as a leader. So are you using evidence-based decision-making as the person that you show up as when you go to work to be a leader? and also how we make decisions within the role of being a leader. So to me, it's twofold. Who do you be and what do you do? And are we using this evidence-based decision-making at both parts of those? Um, again, we have a complex field. Things are evolving, practices, technologies, all of the things. And I want us to pay attention to this because by incorporating real scientific methods and research findings into our decision-making, doing it for real, we can start to minimize some of those things that I talked about in the previous slide with the brain where we have the biases. We can start to reduce errors and improve patient care and team performance and even our own performance showing up, having the traits of an evidence-based leader, right? This is also important because 
instead of relying on what we used to do or stories, you know, like we all have these stories about what we think is the best thing and their personal stories and personal experiences and opinions, we can actually leverage useful information from the clinical trials, research studies, the data that we synthesize from our own databases and quality improvement initiatives to actually help to guide our decisions. It enables us to evaluate also the effectiveness of the interventions that we do, right? Because we do a bunch of things, we have to move fast sometimes, but are we evaluating the things that we're implementing or changing through the lens of it being evidence-based? Are we really assessing risks and benefits, true risks and true benefits, or identifying best practices? Or are we just blindly, and this is what I see most often, blindly integrating guidelines and protocols and then kind of hoping for the best and then not really going back and getting the data, not our instincts, not our anecdotal stories, the actual data to see if what we're doing is making a difference. And if it's not, why not? If it is, how can we further improve that type of thing? A lot of times if something is, wor is working, we don't, we don't want to fix it. So uh, let's see if there's anything else I want you to know about evidence-based decision-making, because I know that you're familiar with it. I think I'm going to talk about this here on the next slide, but I also want you to realize that evidence-based decision-making and being able to eliminate the biases that I spoke of can also mean that within your organization or even within your personal life, instead of you relying on these faulty measures like your brain, um, and which is very faulty, and not, um, you know, sitting down and doing some evidence-based decision-making, what you can do is start to adopt maybe what I would call algorithms or maybe what I would call, I teach my clients in our coaching decision-making frameworks that you can apply to most decision-making elements or, or things that you go through in your life on the day-to-day -day so that you have a systematic approach that is evidence-based, data-driven, all the things to the way that you approach the different decisions you have to make on a day-to-day -day basis. So you're not relying on your brain and on your emotions and your conditioning in order for you to make the decisions that you need to make on the day-to-day. -day. So some strategies for making better decisions. I already mentioned that most of us tend to, and this is not a this is not a throwaway comment. This is actually research driven. It's been proven that most of us make decisions in the ways that I mentioned, which is the instinct, the intuition, the personal biases, taking mental shortcuts. A lot of us haven't been taught how to think. I mean, like, let me know if you've taken a class on actually to teach you how to think. So most of us don't even know how to think. So we take these mental shortcuts. And again, it leads to errors in judgment, especially if you are in complex and uncertain situations. And think about this. For some of you leaders, you've been thrown into situations that you haven't had to deal with in a very long time. You've also been thrown in situations that none of us have had to deal with ever. And things are continuing to change. 
and the trends say that they're going to continue to change and our resources are going to continue to be stretched thin. And so we're going to have to be more innovative and creative. So all of these factors that are going to be thrown your way as a leader are going to continuously, if you're not a conscious decision maker, erode the integrity of your decision making, which is why I'm teaching you this information so that you can learn to make better decisions from a scientific basis. It can be dangerous for you as a healthcare leader, for me as a healthcare leader to just rely on the way that we've always done things, our brain, our mental shortcuts, our instincts, our biases, all of that, because you already know where that leads, right? Um, we negatively impact the quality of the decisions that we make at every area and it trickles down. It trickles out into your personal life, right? How are you making decisions in your personal life? And it also not only erodes the quality of the outcomes that we receive in these various areas of our life, but it also can lead to um, us missing out on opportunities for innovation and change. And I know that you probably, hopefully you're not this person in your organization, but if you are, I'm calling you out. We have all probably as leaders for most of us been in our career or our specialty for a while. And because we are experts in our chosen field, we often think that we're an expert in our chosen field. And so we know a lot. And while we do have a lot of knowledge, there's also a lot of information that's not even filtered into your consciousness based on the things that I've just taught you. So there's also a lot that you don't know that other people know because they have a different perspective, different emotional responses with their amygdala. They maybe have a different prefrontal cortex. And so it's also important to not dismiss or think you know more than somebody or think you know better than somebody in every single instance, because you're missing out on opportunities, opinions, suggestions for that innovation and improvement that I just spoke about. So where you have growth and quality and patient care and lives at stake, you cannot afford to just coast in your position as a leader in healthcare or as anybody in healthcare. And so here on this slide, you just are going to see uh, some strategies that you can start to use to make better decisions. Of course, you want to make sure you gather and analyze the data. You also want to make sure that the data that you're gathering and analyzing is accurate. There are certain systems, electronic systems that are better than others, right? Like for instance, Epic is going to be better than, um, I once had to do some initiatives with an employee health system and they use a different software outside of Epic that is very, very clunky. And so it was very hard to gather and analyze data to make these meaningful decisions. So also make sure that the data that you're getting is correct. Are your people inputting the data appropriately, accurately? Because remember, we all know things are only as good as the data. But gather and analyze the data that you receive. This can be the patient data around discharge times, right? Because if you really want to do staffing, it may not be 12 hours a day. It may not be eight hours a day, um, you know, in our two to three 
shift staggers, maybe if you analyze the data in conjunction with the patient data, you are able to more use the resources that you have available to cover the workload that you have. That's just, you know, just simplistic, uh, a simplistic example. Number two is seek diverse perspectives. We have a big problem with making decisions in isolation in healthcare. We often think that the ER doesn't understand the ICU and the ICU doesn't understand the ER and we do things differently. But at the end of the day, the ER and the ICU work very closely together. However, how often are you actually seeing the diverse perspectives, not just from the different subspecialties like ER and ICU, not just from leaders, maybe the two leaders talk together, the ICU and the ER, but what about the different roles within those different floors? Are they working together? Usually not. So if you wanna have better decisions, then you need to seek more diverse perspectives. Also consider the pros and cons. How many of you, you try to, you push some sort of innovation or change and you get shot down immediately? And most people, when they shoot you down, they only tell you the cons. And they think they're doing you a favor, doing the organization a favor, doing everybody a favor by saying, well, I just want to make sure that we understand all the things that could go wrong. The problem with that is almost everybody that thinks like that has a bias towards only looking at the things that can go wrong. And they don't really also divert that same attention and quality and all the things to also looking at the things that can go right. So if you truly want to consider pros and cons, then it's not about we can't do this. Here's why we can't do this, blah, 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 blah. Then you also need to be saying, okay, now this is why we can do this. This is how we can do it. And then you'll really get a better picture of if something that you think is a no is a yes, or something that you think is a yes, maybe a no. Also managing those cognitive biases that we talked about, such as the confirmation bias that I want to, again, let you know that if you don't have a concerted focus and awareness practice in your leadership, then in your professional and personal life, the confirmation bias is not in your control. So you're going to have to figure out now how to manage these biases now that you know that they negatively impact your ability to make the most optimal decision. And you can do this by, again, learning how to critically think, learning how to critically evaluate information, challenging assumptions, especially your first assumption, not others, your own assumption, and then starting to seek objective input through the different diverse perspectives that I mentioned. And then also being willing to test and iterate. Again, I can't tell you how many times I come in and I'm not trying to change someone's department, but they get very defensive if outside help is brought in to help make things better, even though this outside help is there to help, is there to gather and analyze data and seek diverse perspectives and consider objectively the pros and cons. And they don't have the same cognitive biases that you and your department may have, but so they can come in with some different, fresh, innovative ideas and they may not work, right? They may not be right, but to be open to testing and iterating because what if it's right? What if just like I was able to help one department in a matter of a week, 
increase their productivity by 45% without increasing their perception of the work that they're doing. They were actually saving time and have more time to kind of stop and breathe through the work. But had they not been open to all of this process to, you know, make things better, they would have still been working, spinning their wheels, getting stressed out on the brink of burnout. So we have to not only we all say that we do these things and we're open to these things, but rarely have I seen it in practice in most of the organizations that I go to help initially, initially, I will say. All right, so collaborative decision-making in healthcare. Here's another question for you. Leave a comment in the um, comment box. Again, if you're watching replays, still leave a comment. And my next question is, how often do you involve your team in decision-making processes? And we all kind of know a lot about collaborative decision-making, so I'm not going to talk a lot about this here, but it's just making sure that all relevant stakeholders are having a part of the decision-making process. Now, the relevant stakeholders are going to be different depending on the decision that is being made. Sometimes you need a lot of people at the table um, and you have more time to make sure everybody is heard. Sometimes we have to move quick in a hurry. Things are urgent. And so the more people at the table, the slower things tend to go. And sometimes we need to act fast. So you do need to do this appropriately. And you also need to think outside the box. It's not just the ICU problem or it's not just a leadership problem. It may be nurses involved. There may be techs involved. There may be patients and their families that are impacted. It may be providers. It may be administrators that are involved. So you have to do a better job at recognizing what collaboration truly means because no matter what, I think we all know that, yes, we collaborate, but we could be we could be a little bit more intentional about how we do it. And we could do it a little bit better by making sure we've assessed who really needs to sit at the table and what is the discussion that we really need to have to make the progress that we want to have. Also, effective communication, right? Active listening and the willingness to consider these diverse perspectives when we get all these different people at the table instead of getting defensive, fighting each other, acting like we don't understand each other. The, that's the point. We don't understand each other. So we are going to have differing opinions. But at the end of the day, we still get more information and more perspectives out on the table so that we can then pick the things that we want to test and iterate. Um, and then anticipating and managing decision-making challenges. So this is an area where I really want to go into some things that are going to help you anticipate and manage the challenges that I've spoken about. It's critical for you to be able to do this, especially now that if you're watching this, you have an awareness of it. And once you know better, then you got to do better, right? The top hospitals understand the importance for implementing best practices to mitigate decision-making challenges. So a lot of the things that I've talked about all tie into how you're going to anticipate and manage decision-making challenges. One of the things that we talked about on the last slide, the interdisciplinary teams are one way you can also mitigate decision-making challenges. But it's not just bringing together, like I said, clinicians or bringing together leaders. It's about making sure that the key people have a seat at the table. And on a smaller scale, as a healthcare leader, so say you're not at this big table trying to get everybody to move toward one common goal, you can also implement a similar strategy 
in smaller doses by forming cross-functional teams within your department, which is bringing together individuals with different perspectives and areas of expertise so that you can get a more comprehensive approach to decision-making. So it means the, I don't know what everybody calls it, but let's say the people that, the administrative support for the department collaborating with the nursing so that you can understand better how to change your workflows or change, change your flow or your patient flows. Oftentimes we make a lot of decisions and then the people that are the administrative support for a certain department are the last people to find out, even though they are some of the first people that are often coming into contact with your patients or with the workflow that you have in place. So it means cross-functionally bringing these type of people together within your own department to make more collaborative decisions within your department. And it also, again, because everybody has these different perspectives, they're able to point out these blind spots and help you minimize the things that you don't have control over the cognitive biases. Another thing that you can do to promote a culture of continuous learning and improvement or no, the one thing that you can do is also promote a culture of continuous improvement. Um, when I was in Seattle, Virginia Mason was known for promoting a culture of continuous improvement. A lot of us, again, say that we want to have a culture of continuous improvement, but yet when we start to do experiments and test and iterate and talk about data, Everybody gets up in arms, they roll their eyes, they don't want to change, they don't want to do the work. It's not about you. Ultimately, it's about the outcomes that you are going to be um, producing for your patients, which produces outcomes for the health of your community, the health of the ecosystem, the health of the world. So if you think about it in that way, then it should, as a healthcare leader that cares about the health of your patients, your community, the ecosystem, the world. One of the ways that you can give back and be an activist without having to give a little bit more energy is just to show up and do your job in a way where you want things to get better and you want things to be continuously improved. Same for leaders. Are you offering training like the one that I'm giving you here to the people in your organization so that they understand their limitations and they're able to learn how to transcend their limitations to be a better leader, to be a better tech, to be a better doctor, a better nurse, whatever, in order to ultimately make the, the whole organization better. A lot of times we just want to put the letters behind our name just so we can say we got this certificate, this certification, or a lot of times we will continue to go to school and learn theory and principle. But I'm asking you to take it deeper and actually do have a culture of continuous improvement and change. And that's teaching your leaders how to think, teaching your leaders how to actually take an idea implement it through the looking at the data and then test and iterate all the things I showed you on a couple of slides back. That's what this is all about. And if you really want to elevate your practice as a leader, the practice of your organization as a whole, then I'm going to encourage you to take these lessons like these into your team and start to teach them how to 
actually implement continuous um, learning and improvement. Enhanced decision-making skills. This is another question I want you to answer. I gave you some options this time to make it a little bit easy for you. So uh, knowing what you know now, how do you currently approach decision-making in your organization? Do you have a data-driven approach? And I'm not just talking about like fake data. <laughs> I'm talking about you really get into some meaningful, accurate data and you use it to help drive your decision-making. Uh, do you guys use gut feelings or your intuition um, or impulsive? We've always kind of done it this way. This is how we're going to start doing it. And if it doesn't work, we'll figure it out along the way. Um, C is a collaborative, more team-based approach. And if you don't use any of those and you do something else in your organization, please leave a comment because I would love to know how you make decisions in your organization. This is going it's probably my most favorite part of this presentation because if you didn't think that the confirmation biasy thing blew your mind meaning that you don't have control conscious control over this decision making if you're not being intentional and deliberate when you go into making a decision through a systematic systematic approach then i want you to pay attention to what i'm going to tell you next because this is something that just compounds the fact that you're probably not getting the most out of life. You're probably not getting the most out of your practice as a leader, the people you lead in your organization, if you don't understand this. Some people are born with exceptional decision-making skills, while others of us struggle with making even the most basic choices. And a lot of this has to do with upbringing and conditioning, but I, I want to talk to you about that prefrontal cortex because remember I told you at the beginning I was going to come back to that. So the prefrontal cortex that's located in the front of your brain that is responsible for the decision-making, the reasoning, the problem-solving, all the things, when that region is well-developed and functioning properly, of course you're going to make better decisions, right? But now let's break this down. If you are someone that has experienced trauma in your life, it could be early trauma, it could be recent trauma, especially trauma that you think is not impacting the work that you do, trauma that you haven't healed from, trauma that you're actively healing from, trauma that still comes up back to haunt you when you're in bed at night and you don't talk about it with anyone, but you know that it's still there, then you got a problem. <laughs> And also, if you are someone who's dealing with stress currently, has dealt with a bout of um, sustained stress in the past, then you have a problem because those things negatively impact the development of that prefrontal cortex. And you can't cut your head open and look at your brain and test your brain and do all the things to see specifically if your prefrontal cortex has been underdeveloped because of the things that you've experienced, the things that you've had to go through. This is just something that, again, is not in your conscious level of awareness, but it is impacting you and your ability to make decisions, make it your ability to make good decisions. If you are prone to procrastination, indecisiveness, you just kind of make your choices on the impulse, 
you struggle with tasks that require a lot of attention. So when you have to be focused for a sustained amount of time, you have trouble with that. You have problems with concentration or memory. All of these could indicate that you may have a problem with the development of your prefrontal cortex, although they're not, you know, just the only reasons why you may have problems with the impulse control, all the things that I mentioned. But this, along with other factors, are clues that your prefrontal cortex maybe is not as developed as it could be, thereby indicating that your ability to make sound decisions has been diminished. <laughs> I hope I'm making sense. I try, I want to give you some technical science, but I don't want to make it so complicated that you're like, what the heck is this lady talking about? So um, if you've dealt poorly with stress, if you've dealt poorly with trauma, if you've had things happen in your upbringing or are dealing with things now, then you need to understand that even if you think that when you come into the door to do your work, that you're game one and you're doing a good job, your ability to optimize your decision making is still hindered. And the reason why you don't, you won't have a conscious awareness of the fact that you aren't making the most optimal decisions because again, it's just not in your awareness because of that underdevelopment or that assault on that prefrontal cortex. So what can you do? Like, let's say, first of all, you need to deal with your stress, right? And you need to deal with your trauma, but then there's some other things that you can do in order to start to redevelop or strengthen your prefrontal cortex decision-making muscles. And um, I have a few things that I wanted to share with you. Again, if you're a leader in a position where you can start to implement training like this for your leaders, for your teams, then you want to start to bring this type of specific decision-making training into your organization because some of the top organizations that are doing well with some of the things that I'm mentioning and the best practices that I'm mentioning, spend money on specific um, high-performance leadership training specifically with a focus on some sort of decision-making training. So make sure that you are bringing training and practice that actually will help the staff in your organization enhance their decision-making skills, regardless of wherever they're starting with when it comes to their confirmation biases, anchoring biases, their prefrontal cortex, what have you. Because you can build your team at point zero and then kind of build that up and strengthen everybody so that they are clicking along on the same page. The best practices for these are not going to be these little click and, you know, you get a little PowerPoint kind of like we have here. You just click through and then you do a little quiz at the end. No, that's not how you do it. There's actual things that are involved to help your team make good decisions. Um, and it involves simulations, real life scenarios and things like that so that they can make the decisions, learn to make the decisions quickly and confidently, not only through the things that are taught in accurate or not accurate yeah accurate decision making classes but also in helping them rebuild and restructure and rewire and heal that prefrontal cortex area so if you want to start in your own department or you want to start with yourself because you are not someone that is a decision maker that can bring that training into your organization then some things that you can do to enhance your own decision making skills and those of your team 
are to start making time for regular training sessions and encouraging your staff to engage in problem solving activities by investing in decision making skills. Um, and so for you, maybe you have to create real life uh, situations and simulations where you put yourself through like drills and then look at what some of the top organizations are doing or the evidence is saying is the right answer. So don't look at the evidence until after you've practiced the simulation or the drill and then do some reflection after you have compared your decision with the right decision on where that gap may be. And you'll start to learn different perspectives. You'll start to strengthen your decision-making. You'll start to strengthen those brain structures that may be underdeveloped or underutilized. Let's see. Another thing that you can do, and we don't, we're not often taught this. They try to teach us this, but I don't think they do a good job of it in school. And it's reading actively. And it means that when you are reading a book, you are actively engaging with the text. Um, you're asking questions and you're making connections between different concepts. I think that reading fiction does this really well. But if you're trying to grow and you're trying to take processes that are going to help you improve as a leader and improve your organization and outcomes, then it's probably going to be more nonfiction. And so when we read nonfiction, we have um, this ability to take what we read and we kind of just kind of implement it or go with our first impression instead of taking the time to reflect on what we've read and ask ourselves questions about how it can also um, apply to different things, how you agree with it. Do you not agree with it? And this is the thing that I teach my clients that we often overlook. Context, right? Pulling different contextual elements from different parts of your life. How might art theory apply to a decision that you have to make or the book that you're reading? How might philosophy apply to whatever you're reading or psychology or I don't know, health and wellness applies. So start to make connections through this active reading process on how different concepts even between what you're reading and what's already out there can be, can weave together in order to give you a broader perspective. The reason why this is important is because Oftentimes, we just kind of silo ourselves into reading a piece of information. And like I said, we take our first impression and we just kind of run with it. And if you start to incorporate maybe a concept from art and a concept from philosophy and a concept from psychology and a concept from kinesiology, what you're going to find is there are these little undercurrents of things that apply to whatever it is that you're learning. And it makes you a more not only a better decision maker, it makes you a cr more creative thinker and becoming a better creative thinker helps to make you a better decision maker. You might think that that's crazy, but I'm letting you know that this is research. <laughs> only a small percentage of people are able to read a book and then actively read the book, engage in what I said, which means asking the questions, making the connections between different concepts, et cetera. Most people just read a book and that's what they read. 
All right, almost done. We got one, two more slides. <laughs> and then um, if you have questions, you can start typing them in if you would like. All right, so the role of emotional intelligence in decision-making. We all have heard about emotional intelligence. We may think that we have emotional intelligence. However, of only about 10 to 15% of us actually possess high levels of emotional intelligence. So that means that the majority of us have room for improvement in this area. And it can also be learned. You don't have to be an emotional person to have emotional intelligence. I'm not emotional at all, but I can still read a room. So emotional intelligence is a crucial aspect of effective decision-making in healthcare because it helps you recognize and manage your own emotions so that you can navigate complex situations and make decisions that are in the best interest of whoever it is, the key stakeholders. This is important. Go back to the beginning of this talk where we talked about the amygdala and how it causes these emotional responses that cloud our decision-making. So what you need to do is learn how to have an intermediary between the amygdala and that prefrontal cortex. Because again, for some of us, this response based on the thoughts and beliefs that we grew up with that causes this emotional response is going to be different. But for some of us, it's going to be stronger. It's going to be better. It's going to be worse, what have you. And when you adopt emotional intelligence, intelligence into decision-making and into your practice as a leader, both personally and professionally, you are able to recognize those emotions that you have and you can manage them better so that they don't get in the way of the decision-making like they usually do. So that's the number one thing that you need to know. And uh, emotional intelligence also helps you understand other people's emotions, which can help you to build stronger relationships, foster more collaboration, more trust, all the things that are needed to actually sit down and have the conversations that are needed to make the great decisions that I mentioned, especially when we're dealing with teams that need to be interdisciplinary or cross-functionally integrated to make these decisions. And last slide and last question. What are the biggest challenges you face in making decisions in your healthcare organization? What are the biggest challenges you face in making decisions in your healthcare organizations? Do you think you don't have enough time? You have a lack of reliable data? You have conflicting priorities? There's a lot of uncertainty or ambiguity. And I'm going to um, add another one. You could say other if yours is not on the list. But I also would like to say the limited um, <clears throat> training and resources. Because now that you know all these things that get in the way of making great decisions and the terrible blind spots that we have in our ability to make great decisions, then you now know that it may not be any of these things on the list. It may just be the inherent skill level and the tension placed on adequate decision-making on the healthcare teams or even yourself, maybe you've never had a training like this before. You have to recognize that you face a lot of challenges on a daily basis. And so overcoming this challenge is just one of the challenges that you face. 
I've given you some food for thought. I've given you a few resources that you can start to put in place to help you to navigate these. But you have to understand that that probably the number one thing that you need is the training, right? You need the training, the awareness of what it takes to not only recognize what decision-making is and how it works scientifically, but now also how to overcome these challenges in your team, in your leadership, in your practice, in your personal life. And so that's where people like me come in. Um, As a high-performance coach, part of me teaching you how to perform optimally is how to perform optimally mind, body, and soul. So it's not just showing up as at your peak for work, you know, going through this subconscious work that you need to go through to clear all that stress and clear some of that trauma so that you can operate at peak getting the rest that you need, learning how to add an element of personal mastery practice into your personal life so that you're not just giving your all to work and all the things you also are creating that time and space for yourself that is restorative. So you have different elements of your life that are important to you that allow you to be a better person, to be a better leader, to be a better all of the things. My coaching, my mentoring programs, things like this that I come in and can teach you, can teach leaders in your organization are going to be the key for you to actually be the type of organization or be the type of person that doesn't say we're the best or we want things to change, but to actually recognize that it doesn't matter how good we say we are. It doesn't matter how good we think we're doing personally, professionally as an organization the data still shows that in about 80 to 90% of instances, we're still not hitting the mark. You're probably still not hitting the mark where you want to be in life. You're probably still not hitting the mark with your team. You're probably still not hitting the mark in the way, the potential that your organization could realize. So I just wanted to leave that little bug in your ear that if you like what you hear on this presentation today, or you start to come into my world and listen to all the trainings and the podcasts and all the things and you find that you want help personally or professionally, just make sure that you reach out to me. Um, Oftentimes, if I'm not on a project, I do have space available to come and work with you, work with your team or work with you on more private things that you want specific help in overcoming. And with that being said, are there any questions? I'm going to look on LinkedIn just for a second. Oh, I can't. I don't think I can look. Oh, let me turn that down. All right. I don't think there are any questions. There is a slight delay. I do see that I do have some of you live listening in. I would love it if you could just, I don't know, leave a heart, leave something, leave a like, just so that I know that you understood, you liked what you heard. Um, If you want to come back and answer questions, you can. And again, as always, if you want to reach out to me, then you can email me. My email address is yashika at thelindgroupllc.com. Email me with anything that maybe you want to speak more privately about. You can also DM me. I think you can message me on LinkedIn. All right. Take care. Um, Until next time. Bye.